Now, one of the greatest pleasures of preparing a sermon is that you are constantly in prayer and meditating on the Word of God. Because it is in His Word that He reveals Himself to you. Now, the blessings that come from this cannot be overstated. If you are spending hours at a time pouring over the Scriptures, and especially if you're digging deep into a particular passage, you're going to start noticing things that you didn't notice the first couple times you read them. God will reveal things to you according to his will by reading his word and meditating on it. Now the subject of how God reveals himself in his word, this is going to be the topic that's going to occupy us this morning. God reveals specific things about himself. But that's not to assume that all things about him have been revealed to us. Consider Deuteronomy 29.29. says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. You see, he's been specific about the things that he has revealed, and those things serve a specific purpose. One of the ways that God reveals himself to us is in our Christian conversion. And I'll explain what I mean to that. And to illustrate, I'm going to use my own testimony to help understand what I mean when I say that God reveals himself in our Christian conversion experience. There are three things that God reveals to the sinner when he saves us. In some conversion testimonies, you might have more elements at play than these, but I think we'll find that as we examine them, that there are three specific elements that always must occur when God converts someone to become a Christian. First, he reveals to us that he is. He allows us to finally say along with C.S. Lewis, I gave in and I finally admitted that God was God. For some, this step is already an assumption and doesn't need to be revealed. We just need to be allowed to submit to him as Lord. This was something for me that I needed to wrestle with. Uh, Throughout my youth, I kind of believed that there was a God, but it, it never occupied my thoughts very much. And even when I started going to church, I never really had to be convinced in my mind that there was a God. But as I became a young adult, in my late teens and early 20s, I started becoming skeptical of the goodness of a God that would allow such miseries and troubles to exist in this world. I was really questioning if God was God. And at one point, I even became comfortable with being okay that God might not be. So at one point in my conversion, God was pleased to allow me to finally admit that he is. That's the first step. The second thing that God reveals to us is that we are sinners. He allows us to become aware of our sin and feel at least a little bit of the implications that has on us. Now I say only a little bit because we cannot fully comprehend the internal unholy nature of our sin other than the fact that it has created a separation between us and God and that we are guilty before him. The thinking goes like this. God is good and I am not. An issue of guilt is uncovered with becoming aware that we are sinners. I remember when I first realized this, I was wrestling with the question, what was it that was preventing me from following Christ? I was asking myself, what are the things, what are the reasons why I'm so reluctant to do the things the Bible is demanding of me? The answer to that was my sin. I didn't want to let go of my sin. I loved my sin. 
And you can be told of your sin a hundred times, and it won't register until God himself allows you to see it. Your sin and your love for it will blind you and keep you from admitting it. Because as soon as you do, you are condemned by it, and you have to do something about it. For me, it was during a panic moment. It was during a, a moment where I was attempting to be completely honest with myself. I stopped accusing God, and I started examining myself. I stopped raising my fist to God and said, why are you doing it wrong? And I pointed it right back at myself and said, David, why are you doing it wrong? I was made willing by the power of God to consider all things I had previously clung to to be rubbish. I had to come to grips with the truth what was really holding me back, and it was my sin. This is truly one of the most pivotal and greatest mercies of God, when he allows the sinner to see themselves as just that, a sinner. And truly, brothers and sisters, it is a mercy of God. Because without that revelation that we are sinners, the next thing he reveals to us is meaningless. And that next thing is he reveals to us His grace in Jesus Christ. We are directed to the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived a perfect, righteous, sinless life, who proclaimed with power and authority the kingdom of God, who bore our sins on the cross, dying a death and enduring a punishment that we deserved, and was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he ascended into heaven and is at this moment Lord of all. There's only one place that God leads us once we have that knowledge of our sin. He places us right at the feet of Jesus on the cross so that we can see him as our only hope. Now the order that I've put these in is not necessarily the order in which God reveals in all cases. Some know that there is a God and actually know in an intellectual sense that Jesus is the answer, but they don't know why. That was my experience. I had the gospel preached to me many times, and I understood it was directing me to Jesus, but I didn't have a conviction of my sin. I didn't have that knowledge that I was a sinner. Therefore, the cross made little sense to me, and it had absolutely no appeal. But when the Lord was pleased to reveal to me that I was a sinner, then and only then did I see the cross of Jesus Christ as glorious and something that I knew I needed. Now, just a few minutes ago, I stated that God reveals specific things to us and that those specific things serve a purpose. We've just seen that when God saves a sinner, he reveals to us that he is God, that we are sinners who need salvation, and then he brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I want to be absolutely clear here is how he reveals this knowledge to us. We need to be careful of over-spiritualizing certain events in our lives. We need to be careful of things like seeing images of Jesus in a piece of toast and taking that to mean that some blessing has come upon us. We need to be careful about counting the three red tomatoes that grow on the vine outside and saying, look, see, that's the Trinity. And it's showing me something. Now, that might sound like an exaggeration, but people do that. Christians do that. They look at certain events and attribute it to reveal God's will. 
So I want to be absolutely clear on this. We can only be sure of God's will because he reveals it to us in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that we can't identify when God is working in our lives and we see evidences of that. We are definitely able to see God's providence working in our lives, usually when we're looking back on things as they unfold for us and we see how he has guided us and carried us through various trials and we attribute that to God's will in our lives. And that's very true. But what I am getting at is this. The word of God is the only reliable source of knowledge of God, of who he is, of saving faith in Jesus and our instruction for righteous living. So the purpose of his word and all I've been discussing so far can be summed up in this way. God has revealed the reality of himself in his word so that we may know the depth of our sin in order to bring us to Jesus Christ. Now, in order to examine the subject a little more in depth, I'd like us to open God's word to a place where he speaks clearly about this subject and to what purpose that God reveals himself to us. It's a popular place in scripture that I see often quoted when people are talking about how glorious God's creation is, especially the heavens. Whenever you see extraordinary images that NASA has posted online of the planets and galaxies and deep space, the comment sections usually contain a reference to this popular portion of scripture. And I'm talking about Psalm 19. So right now I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the 19th Psalm. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a wonderful psalm. Now like I've mentioned, it starts off with a spot-on statement about how God, God's glory is revealed in all creation, specifically in the creation of the heavens. Anyone who's ever stared at the night sky on a dark, clear night and observed the multitude of stars in our galaxy has at one point been beset with awe and wonder at the amazing spectacle of it all. It is nearly incomprehensible. The vastness of the heavens speaks clearly of the awesome glory of God. So when we come to Psalm 19 and verse 1 and it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, we can immediately appreciate the excellence of that statement. It's rendered so simply and so elegantly that it's memorable and it sticks with us. Now, unfortunately, it's just this one line that I think sticks with most Christians. And we can get the false impression that this psalm primarily deals with how awesome God's glory is in creation. And it does deal with his glory in creation. We see in the first six verses how God reveals himself in natural revelation, that is, the created universe. God's glory is revealed in the earth and in the seas and the creatures that populate them. God's glory is revealed in the planets and the moon and the stars. God's natural creation serves the purpose of telling us that a creator exists and that he is good. Now, has anyone ever wondered why David starts the psalm here with natural revelation? I think it's a perfect way to start off a psalm about God revealing himself to us. His natural creation is the first thing that we experience in life. We're all born naturally into this world, It's our first experience that all relate to the created order of things. We see birds, we see trees, we see the animals and people. We feel the warmth of the sun and see the amazing array of stars which populate the heavens. They are the first things we encounter of our creator in the world. 
So it makes sense that David, the author of Psalm 19, would start here when speaking the way God reveals himself to us. But David doesn't stop here. David knows that God revealing himself in creation is not enough for us to know specifically who he is. The first six verses of Psalm 19 are merely an introduction in order to point us to something even better. David then makes a statement in verse 7, which is probably the most important in the entire psalm. It's a statement, I believe, really summarizes what he's getting at. Look with me at verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Just take a moment and think about that. The perfect way that God has revealed himself to us, who he is, is in the word of God. It is in the Bible. We see in the following verses, the multitude ways of God's word is perfect. We have here, in effect, what we might call several of the attributes of the word of God. And since the word of God is a reflection of God's character, we can say accurately that contained here are some of the attributes of God. Let's just read what those attributes are in verse 7 through 9. Follow along with me. Starting in verse 7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. David begins Psalm 19 with the heavens declaring the glory of God. But here we see him revealed in his word as the perfect way to tell us specifically who he is. Finally, we come to David's response to the revelation of God in creation and in his word. David's response is laid out in verses 10 through 14, and it is in these verses where I want to direct most of our remaining time this morning. I want to examine how David's response, and by extension, our response, stems from the things revealed to us in the Word of God. Now, I think the the temptation here is to start in verse 1 at that grand, elegant statement of God revealing himself in the heavens and work verse by verse through the psalm. But I think this morning, we're going to do something just a little bit different. I want us to start by focusing on David's response, specifically in verses 12 and 13. I want to concentrate here because I believe it gives us the best source of application for what God is revealing us, revealing to us through this psalm and in his word. Now, earlier I said that God reveals himself in his word for specific purposes. And that purpose was summarized like this. God has revealed himself to us in his word so that we may know the depth of our sin in order to lead us to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose in drawing our attention to the Bible. I think the real thing that separates the one who is coming to true saving faith in Jesus and the one who is simply masquerading as a believer is the knowledge that they are a sinner. That's the key. Without this knowledge of sin, our need for Jesus makes no sense. And our need for reconciliation with God is meaningless. So I want to start with how looking into the Holy Word of God exposes our sinful nature and what our response to that needs to be. Now as we focus on verses 12 and 13 today, this is what I want us to see. I want us to see 
how the word of God reveals our inadequacies. I also want to see how the word of God reveals the source of our dependence. And lastly, I want us to see how the word of God reveals the sufficiency of God's grace. First, the word of God reveals our inadequacies. Look with me at verse 12. It says, Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. We see here in this verse an expression in the form of a question. And that's an inward question. It's one that is dealing directly with the heart. Now why do I say this? And I'm not wanting to get too far ahead of ourselves, but look at verse 14. It says in David's overall response in verse 14, it says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. All of David's responses in examining God's holy character move him to confess with his mouth. And he confesses with his mouth because of what is going on in his heart. Now we're going to come back to this in a little while, but I want us to start here by recognizing that David is speaking from what the word of God is exposing in his heart. So getting back to verse 12, it says, Who can discern his heirs? David is saying, Who is able? Who has the discernment to fully understand the depth of their sin? Now why does he ask this question? Why is this the conclusion that David comes to? Well, he sees clearly in the scriptures the holy attributes of God, next to, with, next to which David cannot stand. Meaning, when he compares himself to the holiness of God, David immediately, as with the rest of us, fails the test. And there really is no comparison. If we were honest with ourselves, we have none of the holy attributes of God. Now, remember earlier when I had us read verses 7 through 9? And I said that they contain some of the attributes of the word of God. Let's look again at them, except this time when we read the list, I'm going to take off the first part, and I'm just going to read from where it says the Lord is in each one of these. I want you to follow along with me in verse 7. The Lord is perfect. The Lord is sure. The Lord is right. The Lord is pure. The Lord is clean. The Lord is truth and righteous altogether. Who is able to meet that standard? I know I can't. Who, after reading this list, can possibly compare themselves next to what these attributes can be summed up as the holiness of God? It's the exact question that David is asking here. David is humbled by what God has revealed to him, as we should be too. To quote another psalm of David, Psalm 14 He says, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. And the same is true as we progress through each of the attributes we have before us in this text. There are none who are perfect. There are none who are pure. There are none who are clean. At best, as the prophet Isaiah puts it, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That leaves no room for us to boast. When we look into the face of God, when we examine his holy character, we fall short. David understands that this is where God's revealed word has led him. 
But there's something else in, in here that David understands. In asking the question in the way that he does, he reveals something vitally important to us. He uses the word discern, which means to perceive by sight or some other sense or intellect. And let me tell you why I think this is important. He's asking who, by using their own intellect or powers of observation, is able to know the depth of their sin against a holy and perfect God. Some may make the mistake in thinking that they're able to to understand things by just using their own intellect, to understand who God is by using their own powers of observation. But what does the prophet say in Jeremiah 17.9? The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Sounds very similar to the question David is asking here, doesn't it? David knows that such wisdom, such remarkable insight into the human condition can only be known if God himself tells us. Remember back in verse 7? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And again, in verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The testimony of God is beyond question, David says. It is sure. It is pure and uncorrupted. And we can have full confidence in his word, and it gives us wisdom. We, as simple creatures, are limited in our understanding. We need the word of God to guide us. When we rely on our own perceptions and intellect, we wander aimlessly in darkness with nothing pointing us to true righteousness. But when the word of God becomes our guide, it illuminates, enlightening our eyes, and fills us with his wisdom. So God has been pleased to bless us with the wisdom of his word, which gives us discernment, allowing us to be able to pursue a right relationship with him. I love this description given in Hebrews 412. You don't need to turn that. I'll just read it for you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, or of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We talk a lot having a discerning heart that there is good discernment among among Christians well how do we gain that discernment do we just rely on our own instincts and opinions do we take the things that we've come up with and hold that as the standard to judge rightly no we compare what is being presented to what the word of God says now this question that David is asking in verse 12, it's not a question he's asking in ignorance. He's not throwing his arms up in the air and saying, you got me. I couldn't possibly tell you who can discern his heirs. David knows that it's the word of God revealed that exposes his sin. David knows he is inadequate to understand the depth of his sin on his own, so he relies on the word of God for guidance. David also understands that the word of God reveals our inadequacies and our ability to save ourselves. David says at the end of verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You see, he knows, going back to verse 7, that the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. David knows that the perfect righteousness of God and only God has the wisdom and the power to know David's deepest sins and cleanse them. David knows that left to his own devices, he is hopeless. Do you think by your own power and righteousness you will be able to make up for all the sins that you've committed against God? David says here that it is impossible. We could summarize the first point by paraphrasing verse 12 like this. Who can discern his errors? I am so vile next to your holiness. I am completely insufficient to know the depth of my sin. I need you to reveal it to me. Lord, you yourself must declare me innocent. David is showing us God is gracious despite our insufficiencies. God reveals his holiness so that we can know our sin and repent. And then he shows us grace and forgiveness. God's mercy doesn't stop there. Not only does the word of God reveal our inadequacies, but the word of God also reveals to us the source of our dependence. Look with me at verse 13. David says, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David recognizes that he is dependent on God's word to keep him back from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are those sins that we commit with full knowledge that they are sinful and of great offense to God, yet we set our hearts to do them anyway. Anyone who has been a Christian for any amount of time knows the battle that rages in our hearts because of our sin. Even though we've been saved from sin, even though we've become equipped with the full knowledge of our sin, we still fall into it. And that remaining sin is dangerous to us. But how? It's because we become presumptuous. Then we have to ask, how do we become presumptuous? Well, let's examine that. We can examine it by asking a question like this. How does a Christian man who has sat under sound biblical teaching go to the altar with his bride saying, till death do us part and end up in an adulterous affair? How does that happen? He knows that adultery is sin. He's a Christian with the Holy Spirit convicting him of it. So how does that happen? By being presumptuous. It goes like this. Starts in the heart. The heart begins to lust after someone who isn't his wife. And that lust turns into a looking at images on the internet or looking at other women and developing a desire in his heart for them. And soon, that isn't enough to satisfy his sinful desires. So looking turns into flirting. The flirting gets reciprocated. And then one day an opportunity presents itself and just like that it happens. Those sinful desires that were allowed to germinate and grow unchecked by not being in prayer and steadfast in the word of God. And then when an opportunity came along the constant presumptuous sinful desires weakens the conscience and you give in. Don't think that this can't happen. It happens to Christians. It happened to the very author of the psalm that we're reading today. So how does it happen? By being presumptuous. 
that you're not going to fall into grievous sins by giving in to the little sins and ignoring the tools God has given us to resist the temptations of the flesh and promote holy living. Let's listen to what James says about this in James 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let me give you another example. Let's consider how someone who had been good at guarding their speech turns into a gossip. And again, it starts in the heart. But in this case, the desires of the heart are fueled by pride and jealousy. And while having that prideful heart, we gain information about someone that others don't have. We observe some fault in someone. Our jealous hearts then harbor judgmental sentiments. And then one day the opportunity arises. We're alone with someone who who we think harbors those same exact sentiments. And we open our mouths and we start to gossip. And then maybe it happens again a week later. And then it happens the next day. Soon we're doing it regularly through repeated practice. We're ignoring the warning in the word of God and we become a gossip. At that point, our witness and our example of the gospel to others goes right out the window. Why? Because they presume it is okay since we are doing it. We slowly chip away at our conscience, weakening it by rationalizing that it's really not that big a deal. We hear other Christians engaged in it and we become presumptuous. And once we decide that we can go down that path, making assumptions about the grace of God, we enter into a dangerous place where it becomes harder and harder to keep ourselves in check because we've dulled our conscience. These things become life-dominating sins. They dominate your thinking. They dominate the desires in your heart. This is what David means when he pleads with God, let them not have dominion over me. He's saying... Lord, keep me back by allowing me to see who you are in your holy word and not sin presumptuously to the point where these sins dominate my life. David is telling us that the solution is to look into the word of God to guard us from such presumptuous, sinful behavior. We are to constantly put off the desires of the flesh by being regularly in the word of God, or they will dominate your life. Let's consider what Paul writes in Romans 13, 12 through 14. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now this phrase, but put on the Lord Jesus. The imagery, the imagery Paul is using here is describing putting off the old garment and putting on a new one, and it is symbolic of our desires, our thoughts, and our behaviors. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? 
by meditating on and imitating his character as it is revealed to us in the word of God. And this leads us to our final point this morning, which is the word of God reveals to us the sufficiency of his grace. The blessings of his grace are revealed to us in that last statement found in verse 13. Look with me there. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David understands that it is the Lord who declares us blameless. That the blessings of repenting and coming to him in faith is the forgiveness of sins. What we are seeing in verses 12 and 13 is David displaying a spirit of repentance. He is facing the reality of his sins by facing the reality of who God is. David has been brought to his knees by looking into the holy face of God and has broken him to the point of repenting and asking God to forgive him. David is confessing with both his mouth and with his heart the great sins he has committed against God. And this very act of repentance opens the door to forgiveness. Thomas Watson, in his book titled The Doctrine of Repentance, speaking about confession, he writes, Confession of sin makes way for pardon. No sooner did the prodigal come with a confession in his mouth, I have sinned against heaven, than his father's heart did melt toward him, and he kissed him. When David said, I have sinned, the prophet brought him a box with a pardon. The Lord hath put away your sin. He who sincerely confesses sin has God's bond for pardon. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Watson continues, Why does the apostle say that if we confess he is, why doesn't he say that he is merciful to forgive our sins? No, he says he is just because he has bound himself by his own promise to forgive sins. God's truth and justice are engaged for the pardoning of that man who confesses sin and comes with a penitent heart by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the blessing that we see here. When we confess, God forgives sin. Now David was bound under the old covenant, but we can still see here that when he confesses his sin, sincerely and in faith, God forgives him. And that's enough. That's the sufficiency of his grace. It's not about all of our works. And what a blessing that is. Because if all of us, we would be laboring for all eternity if we were to even attempt it. Meaning, it's impossible for us to do. God provides the way. He unfolds a path for pardon. He lights a way for us to be reconciled to him, and it is sufficient. And why should God do this? We are undeserving. Our sin against him is eternal. Why would God take the initiative in revealing himself to us throughout all of redemptive history, giving us the gift of his word to guide us, providing a way for us to be reconciled to him, even to the point of giving his only son, Jesus, to die for our sins? The answer is, it's because God is good. He is loving. 
He is merciful and compassionate. And you are precious to him. He loves you and he cares for you. You were made in the image of God. And God sees redeeming his people as worthy and good. His desire is for you to come to him, to look into his holy word, to see what has caused the separation between him and his creation, our sin, and then be reconciled to him by repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. God has revealed the reality of himself in his word to expose the depth of our sin in order to lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, in light of all that God has revealed to us about himself in his word, how should we respond? How does David respond to the gift of the word of God, the very thing God has been pleased to reveal himself in? Well, if we look back in verses 10 and 11, we get a very clear picture of how important David considers the Holy Scriptures. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. It says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. He says here in verse 10, it is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. Now, even to this day, gold is one of the most valuable commodities on the planet. Many currencies established around the world depend on gold as the standard that gives their economic systems value. So in other words, it always has and always will be money. Money represents, even if it's not a perfect representation, the value of your skill and time. Indeed it is, as one radio commentator once put it, it is the representation of your life energy. You expend your life energy doing something and you receive money in exchange. And in turn, that allows you to buy food, shelter, water, heat, clothes, all of the essentials one needs to sustain life. But yet, David is placing the word of God higher than that. How can that be? It's because you can have all of the health and wealth in this life. You can have all of the material creature comforts that you desire. And do all the things that we occupy ourselves year in and year out. But if you do not seek to understand the things God has put forth in his word and respond to them correctly, it is all vanity. You are spiritually dead without them and you are without hope. David says that the word of God gives us a warning. But a warning from what? From the wrath of God that is facing us on the other side of eternity unless we repent and believe on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's go back to Psalm 19 and look at David's overall response. We finally read here in verse 14. It says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's a humble statement. One that has rid itself of of all presumption. David doesn't say, okay, I got it. Or end with a trifle, thanks. He stands back in awe of the holiness of God and trembles as his heart is exposed, assuming nothing. 
He knows that his heart has been exposed as sinful and that God would be fully justified in annihilating him. But God is gracious and merciful. David calls him Lord and his rock and his redeemer. David is confessing that it is God himself who is Savior. This isn't just a confession by his mouth. It's a deeper confession. It's a deep confession of the heart. And that's where we want this to hit us the most. We need to have a heart like David's here in this psalm. A heart that is broken over sin and desires to look to Jesus and to say to him, You are my Lord. You are my rock, whom I must cleave to or else I'll be swept away by my sin. You are my Redeemer. Now, as a last word, I want to address a possible question that one might ask, and that is, if reading God's word shows us his holiness, and then we in turn see our sin, which moves us to repent, why is it that not everyone who reads the Bible is a Christian? Well, there's many answers to that question. There's one answer that I want to present to you today. We see in James 4, 6, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you want the Lord of the universe resisting you? Get rid of your pride. That's the biggest fault. Are you serious about seeking God's faith and truth? He's provided the answers here in his word. But you have to abandon all of your pride and be ready and willing to accept what he has revealed about himself. When I stopped accusing God, when I stopped putting my own righteousness, which I had none, before his, when I began being honest with myself and facing the reality of my sins, then the cross of Jesus became precious and his grace became sufficient. There's a great reward in seeking out those things that the Lord has revealed to us in his word. They are peace with God, restored fellowship with him, a life free from the bondage of sin and an eternity to enjoy him and worship him. Our response to these things is crucial. There is a life of joy and peace to be found in his word. God has thoughtfully given us his word so that we may know how lost we are in our sin so that we can see the sufficiency of his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we are not left to our own devices. Thank you, Lord, that our own imaginations are not the only thing we have to go on to know who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that you have revealed your holiness, your righteousness, your perfectness to us in it, and that it has exposed us Pray, Lord, that hearts would be broken this afternoon. Pray, Lord, that all glory and honor would be given to your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that mouths would confess him as Lord, that would see him as our only hope and our Redeemer and Savior. We thank you, Lord, for all things that you've revealed to us of your glory and your holy word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.